Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined as always by Billy. Billy, how was your weekend? It was great. Highlights in terms of wine-wise, we actually did a, a Mount Etna tasting on Saturday, and I got to have some some great wines across the board, but the highlights were definitely some Frank Cornelius and some reds, both all around Etna, but also one of his single vineyards. So that was great. How was yours? It was good. Yeah, we spent the this past week in the Poconos with some family, drank some beautiful 20, probably 2021 raspberry white claw for most of the week. <laughs> great vintage. <laughs> yeah, it was prime. So yeah, there was no wine this past week which was fine. You don't always have to drink wine all the time, but we had a good time up in the Poconos. You all were busy though on Thursday, which of this past week, the week previous to when this recording is launching on Thursday was Bastille Day. And we launched the, for the first time, we launched two collections, both French wines. This was our Domaine Loire 2015 mini vertical collection and our Jacques Salas champagne collection. As well, I think I said mini vertical for the Loire. It's not a vertical; it's just the 2015 vintage. For that collection, it was a seventy thousand dollar total value. We issued seven hundred shares. That collection has since sold out, and so of those two, we still have the Jacques Salas Champagne collection available. It's a sixty one thousand dollar total collection, and we still have seventy three percent or seventy three percent of that offering has sold through already. So we have 166 shares available at $100 as of this recording. This is an awesome champagne mini vertical collection, some of the most sought after champagne in the world, cult champagne. And yeah, I'll I'll let Billy dive in and give a little bit more of a high level synopsis of that champagne that's still available on our site. But it was exciting to launch two collections at once for the first time to our audience. And, and, you know, for that brief period, having three open collections of really premium wines on the platform. Yeah, that was really exciting. We wanted to launch two French collections on the 14th as it's Bastille Day, or as they say in French, Bastille Bastille Day. And basically, you know, it's the main French national day. It's kind of like how they celebrate almost like their 4th of July. So we thought it'd be exciting to, to launch two more and have three French collections live at once. Yeah, the Loire, it's the number one on LiveX's, you know, power brand 100. It's you know, one of the most sought after wines itself in the world. So it's no surprise that that sold out really quickly. But the Jacques Salas collection was was really interesting to me. It's kind of a, a producer that I've only really read about. I haven't had the pleasure to drink. And, and Adam is really excited about it as well. And, and basically what what is so special about his wines in general is that he and him being Anselm, Anselm, Anselm Salas, I have a hard time saying his name. He took over from his dad back in the 70s, I believe, and or it looks like 1980, and basically decided he was going to focus kind of more on like a, a terroir-driven approach to making champagne. He had trained in Burgundy, and he really wanted to bring some of those principles over to his winemaking. And why this is different is most champagne, especially the big names that everybody knows, is basically sourced from vineyards throughout Champagne. You know, they'll, they'll take a lot of a lot of small growers will bring their grapes in and they'll basically all be bought by the large Champagne houses and they may be from multiple regions. So it really is not focused on a single 
single vineyard, much less sometimes a single region. So what what they did at Salas was really start focusing on the unique aspects of each parcel that they own. So they own different vineyards throughout different Grand Cru villages throughout Champagne. And they basically started seeing what how each expresses itself and really bringing that to the forefront in their wines. There's a bunch of single vineyard wines. This one in particular is a blend of different vineyards, but it's it's really interesting. They're really special wines. They're made in really small quantities. And it's basically like the Loire or DRC of, you know, kind of champagne. They have this cult following. They're made in small amounts and they're supposed to be spectacular wine. So really excited to have that on the platform along with our, the Bordeaux Magnums collection, which is still open and also an amazing collection as well. Or, or Bordeaux Magnums, which has 62% of that total collection was sold through. It's really nice to have a kind of longstanding Bordeaux offering on the site. That's kind of that, that lingers for a little bit, allows people to add kind of a cornerstone to their portfolio. And then having the champagne here is really cool because that was, you know, we had just exited a portion of a champagne collection from 2021 Champagne is still seeing continued rise in the markets. And so it's nice to also have, you know, continually be having champagne available to our investors. I think these are all great collections. And I think um, you you bring up yeah. a great point there, Brady, if I could hop in, is the Bordeaux collection, the Magnums. We purposely created it in the, in the size and format so that it would be able to be live on the site longer. I know a lot of people, we, we sometimes get questions of, like, why isn't this one selling out? Because so many of our collections sell out, you know, yeah. sometimes within an hour. And this one was perfect, perfect, purposely crafted so that when, you know, we are, some of our collections have actually been selling out too fast. And when new people are discovering Vint and coming to the site for the first time, they have nothing they can invest in right away. So we wanted to make sure that we had some blue chip offerings that would, would be live on the site for an extended period so that, you know, new people to the platform have the opportunity to invest in, you know, high quality offerings, as well as, you know, our offering something great for our current community. So if anybody's seeing this and wondering why they're going to be up, you know, this collection's up on the site for a while more, or, you know, we're going to be having more similar style and similar size moving forward. You know, it's purposely done and it's, it's so we can, you know, welcome more people into the event community properly. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And it's the largest, you know, dollar value collection that we've launched so far. It's a $200,000 collection. So there's plenty of great options on the platform right now. And we yeah, look forward to having more folks join the fold and get started with Bordeaux and Champagne. Outside of our collections, Billy, we just sat down with Jane Anson, actually just before we're recording this portion of the podcast and had a great conversation. Why don't you just intro who Jane is and, and why it's awesome that we have her on the pod today and then we'll get into that interview. Yeah. So as many of you all know, I'm a very much a wine nerd and I've you know, purchase every type of kind of wine book possible out there. And there's a, a couple of these kind of, they're, I call them like tomes in my mind, but basically they're like the, the benchmark of books on certain regions right now. And then they're kind of released in relation in conjunction with Berry Brothers and Rudd. They're called Inside and then Name Your Region. So there's Inside Burgundy that was just released this year. And then Jane Anson wrote Inside Bordeaux that was released last year, I believe. And it's basically kind of your ultimate resource into information about all of the different communes, all the different producers. She gives a great history on the region itself, all of the different kind of forces that have helped shape Bordeaux into what it is today. And then something she really takes an interesting dive into is 
more information about the different terroir of Bordeaux as a whole and how that really helps shape the wines there. And most people really don't consider terroir when they're thinking about Bordeaux. They think more Burgundy or maybe up to Barolo or Piemonte in general. But what's really interesting is, is between the left and right bank, the soils couldn't be more different. I mean, Bordeaux itself was part of it, you know, where the first growths are was actually drained. It used to be riverbed. So there, there's a ton of really interesting nuance to the soils here. And she's able to kind of talk about it in this podcast and it's, it's in her book as well. So it was really cool with her. We were able to cover everything from the state of Bordeaux today the, during a sweltering heat wave through, you know, kind of this terroir conversation and sustainability all the way to conversation about NFTs. She launched, relaunched one of her books that's out of print right now in NFT form. So it's kind of exciting to kind of dive into her about her perspective on NFTs and, and how she sees that leap in with wine. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Enjoy our conversation with Jane. Great. So, hi, Jane. Thank you so much for joining today. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, Billy. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to join you. It is kind of crazy heat in Bordeaux today. We are definitely having a Californian couple of days. We're up in the high, well, I guess it's like 105, 106 degrees in Fahrenheit. It's very, very hot. Yeah, that's. I, I've been reading about that. How... I guess my two main questions are, it's been like this for a while, hasn't it? Like it's, it's not been like just one day. This has been a, a, a hot summer. So we had a, a big heat wave in June when things were going up to about the same as they are today. And then it went back to pretty normal. And now we've had, yeah, almost a week, four or five days of it being extremely hot. And today I think is the hottest. So we've got two fires that are raging kind of on this West coast of France near to Bordeaux. We have one that is to the south of Bordeaux, but quite near vineyards, and then one in the north in the Medoc. So there are vineyards, but it's a little bit further over towards the ocean side because the whole of Bordeaux has got a kind of a bank of pine trees all the way down, pine forest all the way down the west of France. And heat and pine are not a good combination. No, no. Hmm. And that, that pine forest also kind of acts as a barrier from some storms from the sea sometimes too. So if those are damaged, that might have lingering oh, repercussions. You know, that's a really good point. I haven't even thought of that because you're right. That's why they're there. They've been, they're a very, very helpful barrier. And you're right. That could be a problem later on in the year. Hmm. Interesting. And then was there hail in part of the Gironde earlier this year as well? <laughs> it's not been the best season for the weather. We've had, yeah, we had a lot of hail. We had some frost. I mean, you, you name it, things have, things have happened. It's been... And a good season in some ways, because it's been dry, there haven't been disease pressure in the same way. There hasn't been mildew, there hasn't been rot. But if you're in an unlucky place, you've had to deal with, yeah, with, with, with other things such as frost or hail. Wow. Yeah. So not well, even hope. being a winemaker these days, it's true <laughs> wherever you are, I think. Oh yeah, that's, that's certainly the case. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining in the intro here. We mentioned, you know, you're an author of many Bordeaux books. You're quite, you're probably one of the, the world's top Bordeaux experts, but can you give us a little background on who you are and kind of how you got into wine specifically ended up focusing on Bordeaux? Sure. So I've been living in Bordeaux since 2003. So crazily next year is 20 years. I didn't come to Bordeaux as a wine writer. I came to Bordeaux as a journalist. So I'd been living for about 10 years before that over in Japan, in Hong Kong, and in London, a little foray into Australia, but, but mainly th those three. And I was a, a writer, writing about lots of different things. I was editor-in-chief of a 
big, like when the first dot-com boom at the end of the 1990s, I headed up a couple of big websites at that point. And I just became interested in wine from a personal point of view. And then the more I started reading about it and researching about it, the more I realized as a writer, it's such an interesting place to be in, just in terms of all the different ways you can, you can, you can, you know, access wine through so many different angles. And that makes it super, super interesting from a human point of view, from an economic point of view, from all of those things. And then we moved to Bordeaux with the intention of just staying for a year. When our first daughter was born, she was tiny. We put her in the back of our old like 1970s BMW that we'd got from my mum that we probably we probably bought this car for maybe 500 pounds from my mum so so old and we stuck our little five-year-old five-month-old sorry daughter in the back loaded up all of our worldly possessions and drove down to Bordeaux with no clue what we were going to actually do when we got there and then yeah when we got here we realized what a great place Bordeaux is to live in so many ways. It's very nicely located and it's close to the sea. It's close to Spain. It's got this very, very beautiful vineyard itself. And somehow 19 years have passed and we are still here. Lauren, my our youngest, is now 19 and at university in England. And it's been great. It's, Bordeaux is a very, very interesting place to be. Wow. That is that is quite the quite the the journey there. I didn't expect that. And then the the dot-com boom and the the website connection kind of explains more of the NFT's kind of interests, I guess, which we'll, we can dive, dive into in a little bit. Cool. Well, I guess on that, in terms of, so you went from not really being in wine and writing about it as an interest to kind of really going down the, the rabbit hole. Was that just kind of a snowball effect of writing a lot with it? Or was, were, were there any certain experiences or connections with producers where you were just like, oh, this is, I really want to dive deeper into this? So the first one, and apologies if people have heard this story before, but probably the, the first one that really made me connect to wine in a more in a deeper level was going to South Africa. So again, it wasn't in Bordeaux, it was in South Africa, but probably a good five years before I moved here, maybe, maybe a little more, little more. And it was just after apartheid had ended. It was a couple of years after apartheid had ended, and going to the Cape Winelands and meeting a guy called Javulani, who was the first black manager of a winery in in the in South Africa and he'd spent the apartheid years living in New York and then when it was repealed he wanted to come back to South Africa and help build the new South Africa and to try and be part of the story and to bring his experience he'd been working for Acker and Merrill in New York and he came back Mm. and I met him as a journalist and interviewed him I think it was for the Telegraph it was from a it was for I did it as a freelance but then sold the story afterwards and that was was just really quite mind blowing for me, just having that interview with him and that experience and being in South Africa in those years and, and find, you know, just looking at all the, the, the economic and political history behind the wine industry in South Africa. So that was really a, a kind of a key life changing moment for me. And then when I moved to Bordeaux, I was writing about travel as well as wine. But that was when I started studying and doing the Wine Spirit and Education Trust programs and kind of get, getting more knowledge of, of, of Bordeaux wine. But I definitely began it simply as a journalist where I would write news stories of what was happening in the vineyard. Maybe I'd do profile pieces of certain winemakers and I'd be tasting a lot. And I was very, very lucky to have a couple of mentors really here who were very helpful to me, like Denis de Bourdieu, who sadly is no longer with us, but he was a professor at the university here and a consultant and just incredibly generous, wonderful guy who was very helpful. I did a lot of tasting with him and he 
he just helped me a lot in terms of becoming more confident in, in what I was doing. And then in 2011, I think I, I studied at the Institute of Enology here in Bordeaux. It's just a year long course. It's a t- tasting diploma and it's fascinating. It was in French. So it, was, it wasn't easy. It was a great, great way to get my French better and also the, the technical side of understanding winemaking. And yeah, so probably after that, I then made the switch to really being 100% talking about wine. I was with Decanter for many years, about 20 years. I was with Decanter and I was their Bordeaux correspondent. After I'd been in Bordeaux for about 10 years, I became their Bordeaux correspondent, which meant I'd started doing the En Prima as well. So tasting through all the new seasons and wines and writing about them and publishing my, my notes. And it just is, as you know, it's a fascinating area. The more you know, the more you know you don't know and the more you want to know. And every time you think you've got a handle on something, something new comes up and completely changes your mind. It's it is a, a great area to be in. And then last year, I guess in September of last year, I, I left Decanter and I launched my own website, which now has been going for nearly a year. So simple, janeanson.com, easy to, easy to remember. It's really interesting to me that you, you kind of went through that synopsis and you didn't mention a tasting or a bottle of wine or one you know, specific experience with a particular producer or wine. But it was more about the people, the social, political dynamics of a particular region. I think that's really interesting and wondered, you kind of mentioned you were starting to do tastings and you got into the W set. Was there a moment where um, you know, coming back to Bordeaux, you said these are the wines and the producers and like in terms of the wine style that I want to dive into, even though you had maybe these other social, human, political experiences in the Cape. Did you have a particular wine or producer that you kind of fell in love with in Bordeaux that cemented that area for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There were there's lots of moments of of when you kind of connect truly to the to the, to the heart of of a, of a wine, probably one of them is a style which I don't really write about very much at all, and that was is a Sautern. I, I remember having a, a really incredible experience with the Chateau Clemence. I think it was in 1997 that I had, but it was a food and wine. So again, it was a little bit wider than just the wine. It was having that wine with it was this kind of apricot crunch dessert that my godmother had made and she's someone who I love very much and it was a very special evening being with her and she'd I think she'd bought the wine and I'd made the food and I was with my my mother as well and that was a really beautiful evening it was just before we moved to Bordeaux so she must have brought it knowing that we were going to move and that was a really special moment that, that, that connected to me and I guess when we moved to Bordeaux I think and this would again be connected to the person, but it was Lynch Barge was probably the chateau that I first truly got to know deeply and spent a lot of time with. And again, this is Jean-Michel Cars, who is the, the kind of patriarch of Lynch Barge. And right now I'm actually translating his autobiography. So that's been a long time now. I've known him for about 20 years. And he was also somebody who, when I moved here, not knowing very much, but being enthusiastic and I hope asking the right questions was somebody who really opened up the world of Bordeaux to me and gave me a couple of books that he knew I should read and just was very open. And so tasting old Lynch Barge with him, I remember actually the first time I went to see him, he gave me a bottle of 1996 Lynch Barge to take away. And I really, he didn't have no reason to do that. I was not a, a journalist who had any knowledge of wine or any kind of standing in the wine world. And he said, this is a, this is a really important bottle 
it was for him he he loved it and he said I want you to try it and I remember taking that home and tasting that with my husband and two friends we had there from England at the time and that was again a very special moment wow yeah now that's I I'm I'm more of the same way I, I had I haven't had like that epiphany bottle but it's always interesting that even in the as the moments so especially you can still remember the vintage and like the how the wine tasted even though it's more about the macro you know group and everything you were doing well, speaking of kind of since over time, how the, you know, the wine itself has, you've had these experiences where you got to chase the 96 when you got there and you were kind of diving in over a period of time. Have you been able to notice a transition in style change of the wines? And do you think that has been for the better? Or, I mean, obviously not necessarily for the better, but has, you know, what, what have you noticed really in those styles? And, and in what's I your think it, so if you think that I moved here in 2003, which weirdly was another very hot year, this is probably the hottest year since 2003 that we're living through right now. But it was very much at the middle of the Parker era when I moved here. And I, I think for another decade, really, certainly until 2010, was still very, very much the Parker area where you had a lot of low yields, you had a lot of big fruits, you had quite high alcohols. And that was a style people were specifically looking for. Today, people might be looking at how to mitigate those styles, I guess, partly because naturally, as the climate gets warmer, you naturally get much higher sugars. So therefore, you don't need to do such low yields. In, in a way, you need to allow the yields to be a little higher to mitigate those extremely concentrated flavors. And certainly that idea of hang time and letting the grapes stay for as long as possible to get as ripe as possible, that is no longer a fashionable thing to do. When I moved here, often people would strip the leaves around the grapes to get as much sunlight as possible to again get that concentration. You'll find now people talk about shading and changing the canopy to make sure that there's as much shade as possible to protect the grapes. So those kind of things have almost gone 180 since since we moved here. And that's really been an interesting evolution. I've also been here at the time that the Chinese have come in in a big way to the Bordeaux market from 2008 onwards. You saw this massive influx of Hong Kong and, and Chinese buyers and investors, both in the wine and in the estates and the chateaus. So that's been a brilliant time. I lived in Hong Kong for three years. So I loved having those two parts of my life kind of coming together. I worked for the South China Morning Post and I yeah, had lots of friends still there. So I really enjoyed that and going back and forth. And with Decanter, we had a lot of events that we did in Shanghai. So I would travel back and forth. So I really followed a lot of that evolution through. And today we have that's coming back a bit because with President Z, he has kind of discouraged the idea of having lots of trophy wines that people give as gifts. That's really kind of come away and also discouraged Chinese money being invested overseas. So we've seen a kind of a retrenchment of all of that. So it's been a very, very interesting 20 years, I think, for, for me personally to, to be here as a as a writer and as a taster, because then you've had so you've had that political side and you've had the taste evolution. Yeah. Now that that makes a lot of sense. I, I didn't think about that the Asia connection that you personally had. That that must have been really interesting because you had, I guess, from some people's perspectives. It was really good because they came, you know, there's a lot of money influx and then, you know, cold, you know, they, everybody kind of started mixing. So some people were like, oh, it's too much, too fast. And it's kind of cool that you got that perspective of this is part of my life. This is another part and coming. Yeah, together. I love I love that. And also because of, again, I think this idea of being a writer, I did a lot of research into the history of Bordeaux. My, quite a few of the books, certainly the first book I wrote was about the history of the first growths mm -hmm. and and it went right back to the mid, really the Middle Ages. So looking at the Chinese coming in 
it was very, very easy for me to put it in the context of this is nothing new at all. It was the English and then it was the Dutch and then it was the Germans and then it was the Americans and then it's the Japanese. And that's the beauty of Bordeaux, that it's been open, that it's been very, very much an international port city at, at, at the exchange of, of, of the wine world. So I liked thinking of the Chinese as being just the next wave of people who have brought a new level of richness, and I mean that in a cultural sense, to Bordeaux wine world. And it's also why I like that today in Bordeaux, you have a lot of international wines that are being sold through the Place de Bordeaux. And I think, again, that's a really nice exchange. And it's the next, for me, kind of natural evolution of being a port city. So yes, the Bordeaux wines are going out to the world, but I love the idea that now the world's icon wines are coming to, to Bordeaux and being sold here. That makes a lot of sense. I got the same sense when I was reading your other book, The Inside Bordeaux, just even your little short synopsis of the history of Bordeaux. It is really interesting just to see how they're laid out, this different cultures coming in and helping, you know, trade the wines and people discovering them at different times. It's really cool. I'm so happy. Thank you. Because when I did that that history book, I really wanted to do it in a different way than it had been done before. And for me, I thought that was a nice way to do it, to bring, what, what did these different cultures bring back in the 400 years ago and what are they doing today so what are the traces left today of those guys that came here in the 16th century etc yeah it was really interesting because i had got i went to my first key kind of tastings this year and then i got to meet jan Teampont, and it was funny because i was just like thinking about your book and i was like oh then came his family came here and this is just part of like the continuing so that was cool for me speaking of that book can you talk a little bit more about the evolution in terms of the conversation around terroir and bordeaux and and why that's kind of been kind of not as in the forefront as it has been in other regions. Yeah. And I would say it was something which started to bug me when I'd been here for a while. And you get to the point, I always wanted to know more and why. Why do things taste the way they do? Why are certain chateaus more famous than others? And I didn't kind of buy the idea that it was just about having had the wealthy owner at the right time, which is often the way that we think about Bordeaux. It's just about big business and it's just about having aristocrats having owned certain estates at a certain time. So I just wanted to know more. And also I found it fascinating that this region, which makes wines, which can last for 40, 50 years at a time in bottle, and we're not given the same credibility for their terroir in the way that Burgundy was, or the Rhone Valley was, or or Italy, you know, or, or like as, if we think about the way that Barolo is very much individual crews. And it just seemed kind of strange that Bordeaux didn't do that. And I went once, one of the reasons that I wanted to write inside Bordeaux was I, when I did this tasting diploma at the Institute of Enology, I had a professor there who's called Kees van Leeuwen, who's Dutch, and who again has this link with the Dutch who came in the 17th century and helped to drain the Medoc and kind of prepare that land for, for vineyards. Anyway, he was a, an amazing lecturer. He's Dutch and he's very clear. He speaks brilliant English. And I assume actually this lecture must have been in French. But the way he expresses himself in whatever language is incredibly clear. And he was talking about terroir and how, how complex really Bordeaux was. But he did it in such a way that I, could, I can just remember so clearly being in that class. The only time that I can think of being in a class that had the same impact on me was when I was 17 and I was studying English literature for A-level at school. And I can remember reading Ode to a Nightingale, a, Kate, a Keats 
poem and my head just exploding with how cool that poem was and walking out of that class and thinking I want to study English at university which I did and that was just and then this class was a bit like it to me I had this terroir lecture from Kay's and my head just exploded and I was like why don't people talk about this more for Bordeaux why is it so just brushed to one side how complex the soils are here and what an actually a true impact they make on the different flavors of the wine. And so it really gave me the idea that I wanted to write about it in a book in a, in a way that hadn't been done before. And so when I started doing Inside Bordeaux, I asked Kays, would he be my scientific advisor? And so he, he was, I was very, very lucky. So we have lots of new maps that haven't been done before that are in Inside Bordeaux. And I, I wrote the terroir chapter entirely but I made him read what I'd written and was it, you know, was it, was it bright? And I kept rewriting it, rewriting it, rewriting it because I didn't want it to sound scientific. I wanted it to sound understandable for people like me. And I hope most readers who don't have a scientific background, but want to know why does a wine taste the way it does when it's in the glass? And so the cool thing about Bordeaux is this is a massive area. It's like four times as big as Burgundy. And you have, you're going from the ocean to kind of, well, near the ocean to the to very close to the to the Dordogne, you have a, a very long variation. You have two big letters, sorry, two big rivers that go through the region and cut through the region. So it's just very complex. There genuinely are extremely different soils in Saint-Emilion compared to Poyac, and extremely different in Margot compared to Saint-Julien, even though they're quite close, they're, they're very, very different soil types. And so I started digging into this and I really enjoyed it. And then you find these kind of mind-blowing things like the 1855 classification. So all of those 61 very famous chateaus that we always say they're famous because they were owned by aristocrats. But it turns out that every single one of those 61 chateaus are on a specific type of gravel. There are five different types of this gravel terraces. And there are just two of them, which are the highest quality. And all of the 61 chateaus are on those two terraces. And they didn't know that in the 19th century. No, they had no idea. And yet they were given recognition for being brilliant quality. So just to cut it short, what I found, the more I researched was that it should have much more recognition. Bordeaux should be recognized for having these great terroirs. And they do have a genuine impact on what the wine tastes like. And so, yeah, that was something that I really enjoyed and that I genuinely think I helped to move the conversation forward about about the way that Bordeaux should be approached. So that's something that I, I feel really happy about. It's completely down to Kays Van Leeuwen. I'm not the scientist, but I hope I help to translate what he's saying in a you know in a way that we can all understand. Is the pivot the pullback maybe from the high alcohol ripeness late later harvest that will help this conversation continue to move forward? I would assume, correct? Or like how Absolutely. do you view it? Definitely, definitely. Because all of those things, how do you mitigate them? One of the best ways is to know much more about the soils you're on and then plant accordingly or change your viticulture accordingly. Mm -hmm. But it all has to start with what does your soil give you and what do you need to do about it? Right. And then when when everything's not kind of overshadowed shattered by super ripe fruit and high alcohol, it's easier for some of those characteristics to come Which through. is yeah. an issue. I think we have that issue a little bit in the Napa Valley here in California. There's such an emphasis on you know the ripeness of the fruit and the high alcohol content and these kinds of things that, you know. The, the joke of like if you've had one you've had them all sort of but there is a there is, is even more yeah, there's more of a story if, mm -hmm. if you get to a point of very ripe fruit you do you do hide some of the characteristics and i just did an awesome vertical of 
Prolong Mondo, which is a chateau in Santa Million, which was part of that kind of overripe, overconcentrated school in the 2000s. And we did a vertical that went from the 60s through to 2019. And it was so interesting seeing that that difference of, of style evolution from going from when they put the emphasis really on winemaking, just exactly like you say, of the hang, hang time and also the amount of oak you're using in the cellar and making sure your malolactic is in barrels. So you're adding a little bit of sweetness, like natural, not, not sugar, but, but from this, this kind of impression of sweetness to what they're doing today when they're kind of picking a tiny bit earlier and they're just letting this terroir come through. And it's on this beautiful limestone, clay limestone plateau. But you wouldn't necessarily know that in 2004 or when they're not kind of letting it speak. But today you can feel that slightly more salty saline finish that comes from the limestone. And it's, yeah, it's, it's I, I love that kind of thing. That allows me to get much more geeky than I ever thought I would, to be honest, about wine. But now I, I really enjoy that side. Yeah, on that same note, do you think I've I've listened to some some crew bourgeois kind of seminars this year and some other a lot of different conversations around moving towards sustainability and sustainable practices? Do you think that's out of like proactive necessity, like proactiveness, or is it out of necessity in a way that like you know the climate's just changing to the way it is? Like this just has to happen to make good wine. It's expressing the way you want like you were discussing. I. I think that we all still want to pretend that things aren't changing as quickly as they are. I think that that's human nature and it's really tough. So if we look at the plantings of Merlot in Bordeaux, we probably should be pulling it up quicker than we are. So if you actually look at over the last 20 years, Merlot plantings haven't changed that much. And in fact, they've gone up a little bit than where they were 20 years ago. But the reality is that probably does have to change. So I think there's two things happening. One is we are and much more aware that we need to make changes. And the other one is it just, it's hard. It's, it's hard for people to, to accept that this is really happening. Yeah. And just, just to hop in for, for our listeners, that's because Merlot is an early ripening varietal, right? And with, with the current heat and everything transitioning, yeah. the, it needs to be something else that won't you know, be ready to go in now, August almost pretty much. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they are doing clever things like we talked about before, like the canopy management and maybe looking at rootstocks and, and everything like that. But I think, well, I hope it's not true, but it looks like the climate is really racing ahead of the decisions that we're making on the ground. Yeah. Do you think, I, I guess like what you were saying this year is, is unfortunately an example of a very hot but dry year. Do you think as, as certain things progress that sustainable viticulture will be easier to maintain, I guess, if, if, if it is a little warmer and a little drier overall? I think in terms of organic and biodynamics specifically, yes, for Bordeaux, I think it's been easier in Provence and in even in Burgundy, which is more of a continental climate, they probably had it easier. Bordeaux is still next to the ocean. It still has a lot of rot in a usual year. You have the threat at least of mildew and rot and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not always an easy place to be organic biodynamic and maybe that will get better. Although what we're finding so far is it's more about being a chaotic climate. It's not that it's getting hotter and drier every year. It's that you, everything gets thrown at you in one year. So you go from really, really rainy periods to really, really hot and dry periods. And I think it's, I think you have to be much more reactive and you have to be very, very good viticulturalists nowadays you've really got to be close to your vineyard and that's one of the reasons that I really trust people who learn biodynamics because you can't be in biodynamics unless you are 
totally on it. You're following your vineyards and you're knowing what's happening there. And so I think that's got to be an advantage in today's climate. Outside of Chateau Palmer, what, what are some of the other bigger names that are trying to practice biodynamics in the region? So there's a super cool one over in Castillon, which is so a little less expensive, but still quite a lot for Castillon. That's called Clopuiano. Clopuiano is one of my favorites, and that's been biodynamic for a long time. Chateau Palmer, Ponte Cane, you have... Clemens down in Sauterne, uh, Chateau Giro down in Sauterne, more and more. I mean, there really are a lot. So if you think of the first growth, Chateau Margaux is basically, it's not, it's not certified, but it is, it is entirely organic in terms of how it farms. And Dufort Vivens is another good one. I mean, there are a lot that are, that are now being biodynamic. I think we're at something like 10% of Bordeaux is certified organic or biodynamic i think it's something like that and and it's certainly in terms of conversion you'll you see it rising every year so transitioning from the sustainability conversation and chateau kind of changing their point of view on that and kind of their approach to sustainability let's maybe pivot over to talking about what their view is on wine investment and investment companies brady do you maybe want to touch on something on that realm obviously we you know, we're, we're an investment firm and we have, we're trying to develop more and more relationships directly with producers. One of our big emphases is around education. And obviously this podcast is a part of that. How do you, you know, in your view, when you, in these relationships that you have with producers and being around the region, what is the traditional view from producers on investment firms like ours? And, you know, some of the initiatives of initiatives that we're trying to promote in terms of education and developing mutually beneficial producer relationships is to change the narrative around that. But sort of what, what do you see in the region between producers and their relationship with the investment industry? Well, I think Bordeaux is kind of a strange region in, in that way, because there's this kind of a, a step in between the producers and the investment houses, or of course, the, the final consumers. Certainly for the iconic names, the names which actually go on to be traded, etc. And it's been true for eight centuries that standing in between the chateaus and their consumers are the negotiant level. So Bordeaux has this strange relationship where it knows that its wines get traded and it knows that part of the mystique of Bordeaux wines is the fact that they can be bought and sold and rise their price over time. And the chateaus benefit from that. And they know that they benefit from that, even if they don't like necessarily to talk about it, because from their point of view, they have this arm, this kind of sales arm or marketing arm of negotiants that they don't pay for and that they don't know exactly always where they're going to and what they're doing, and yet are the people who are responsible for sell selling the wines. And if I just back up a little bit to explain to listeners a bit more about what I mean by that. So you have in Bordeaux something called the Place de Bordeaux. And the Place de Bordeaux is essentially a kind of a virtual marketplace where there are lots of different houses, merchant houses, who sit on this Place de Bordeaux and buy and sell the Bordeaux wines. And you have a group of brokers, so individuals or small firms who are another link of the chain who sit in between the chateaus and those negotiants. So the chateaus themselves will work with brokers and the brokers will tell them which negotiants are the best, which, which ones they should work with. And then that's the, that's the Place de Bordeaux, chateau broker negociant. And then from there, 
the negotiants are the guys who will then go on and sell to the traders or to the importers or to whoever it is globally. And very, very, very rarely do the final consumers get involved ever with this layer, this thing called the Place de Bordeaux. There are some chateaus in Bordeaux that sell direct to consumers. And sometimes it's a mix of the two. But the names that we all know, the famous names, they tend to work through this idea of the Place de Bordeaux. So from the point of view, in answer to your question more directly, the chateaus don't have, in, in a usual year, the chateaus don't have much experience or much much kind of time spent with those final consumers because they kind of outsource it to the to these other layers. And the way that it works is the chateau will set their, the price of their wine and then the brokers will add 2%. The negotiants might add 15%. But those margins are paid for by the end buyer. They're not paid for by the chateaus. And it's a very interesting system. It works extremely well in terms of getting the chateaus wines out globally because Bordeaux makes a huge amount of wine. If we go back to that right at the beginning, we said this is just a big, big region. So these chateaus make a lot of wine. And this system is an extremely effective way of making sure that 170 countries worldwide get a little bit of that wine. And it keeps the price high in many cases if it works. And it also get, gets a distribution out at every different layer of the distribution chain. So in terms of the notoriety and the fame of the chateaus, it works really well. So that is good in many, many ways for investment, for investment houses, because they also benefit from that system, because they are finding they're, they're investing in a wine, which is not kind of all getting blocked at any point of the chain by having too much in any one place. And that obviously is good from an investment point of view. But the downside is that there's not this usually a very, very direct link between the chateau and the and, and you guys or whoever the people are who are doing who are doing the purchasing. Which of the which of the chateau you said that there there are some that kind of have a direct to consumer component is do you see that in the 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 Upper tiers, Billy likely knows this already. Is that in the upper tiers or where is that happening? So and generally speaking, at least as we know publicly, the 30% who don't sell through negotiants tend to be the smaller estates. So they might be the small family run estates in the Cote de Bordeaux or in, you know, Gras or those guys that sell for less expensive prices. Generally speaking, they might have really a, a list of loyal customers who buy, buy from them direct, which, by the way, has been pretty good during COVID times because they've had those direct links. That's actually been pretty helpful sometimes. The bigger chateaus tend not to do that, but they tend to go through negotiants. But interestingly, over the last, I would really say it's quite recent, over the last five years, maybe 10 years, even at the top level, they are doing a much better job of trying to know who their end consumers are and actually doing some outreach themselves. Maybe they've hired ambassadors within their own staff, so not outsourcing everything to negotiants who will get to know certain regions and hold, hold tastings and kind of work hand in hand with the negotiants. So that it's evolving, but historically they've kind of, and the, the crazy thing about Bordeaux is historically those chateaus would sell everything on Primeur to the negotiants really in the morning or in maybe over the course of three days. And they'd be like, right, that's it. That year's wine is sold. And then they wouldn't have worried about where it went to. They just would then move on to making the next year's harvest. That is no longer true. Now they do care and they follow it. But it's really it's so interesting. It's such a different thing from most other regions. Yeah. And I think 
speaking with a bunch of people there, what's interesting is that urge and interest in learning about that end consumer is something that like, and I, I know we weren't going to get, we're not going to get too much into like what the event kind of model is here, but the ability for people to kind of be involved with a, a wine kind of indirectly, the Chateau seemed to be expressing some interest in like, oh, you're telling us like you have a group of, you know, these people who are all invested in Bordeaux wine, like would we be able to offer, you know, wines for sale to, you know, your community if we wanted to. And then we were like, well, you know, we can explore these types of things. But what's interesting there is you're still able to kind of understand people who have interest in the region and kind of help fan the flames. And that's something from Vince's side, it's not just about trying to get people to invest in an asset class or in, you know, wines that we think might perform well in the future. It's also educating them on the region. So we're trying to get that that balance and kind of talk to the producers about the value that we're adding there. Because we, we often say this, but there are people investing in Benton who are big wine people and already know about wine and maybe have their own sellers. But then there are a lot of others who were their kind of first touch point to really high-end wine. Maybe they're more that NFT crowd, the retail investor who might just buy a share here or there, never heard of Bordeaux. And then now we're their first intro to them is us talking about terroir in Bordeaux. And now they'll go on and talk about terroir and like what's kind of interesting. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I think the reality is today we want authenticity. We want those much closer links to whatever brand it is that we're investing our time in, whatever, you know, financially or not. I think there's an expectation from us as consumers that we want people to, 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 to kind of walk the walk and to, and to, to really, to have this this idea of authenticity and, and that whole idea of shopping locally, knowing where things come from, what's the supply chain, are they treating their workers fairly, are they really doing what they say they're doing about the environment, etc. And you, for that, you need some honest exchange. And what maybe wasn't even true twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, the price mattered and the prestige of the history mattered. Today, so much more matters. And so, I think chateaus are understanding that they know they have to change the way that they have this reach to their consumers. But you're right; it also provides an opportunity for various different companies who are who are happy to go that extra mile. Awesome. Well, speaking of how things are changing, and I guess this goes into the transparency thing, but this is my interesting transition into NFTs. How did you kind of get interested in them and how, what do you think their future is working with the wine industry and interacting? As you said, I worked back in the 1990s and pretty much actually until I moved to Bordeaux with websites at that first phase of the kind of the dot-com boom. I did a master's in online publishing and I, and I then set up this, this thing called Prime Location, which was a big property website in England that at the time, it was those years where you just were given so much investment. So we had like 12 different channels. It was ridiculous. It's still going, but today it's just about property. But when we launched, we had a channel about gardening, about home entertaining, about a decoration, you know, you name it. And I was the, the managing editor for that. And I did this really interesting, I was a content strategist. So you looked at how you should set this up and the different channels to reach people. And it was, it was super interesting time for, for me and learned so much. So I've always been interested in that side of how does technology interact with just the stories that we all want to tell as writers and as communicators, you want to interest people and tell stories. So when I was launching my own website, I was very conscious of that, of thinking, how do I get the content about wine to people in an interesting way and in a different way, and maybe in a fun way, wanting to find different ways to, to reach people. So for my site, I was very clear that I wanted to have 
podcasts. I wanted to have um, video and I wanted to have text and and maybe the same story packaged up in different ways. So if I write a tasting of, of a particular chateau, then maybe I would have the tasting notes, but I might also have a podcast interview with somebody who, who works there. Or maybe I'd talk about the history. I, I like the history quite a lot. So I did this really cool, big 40-year tasting of Chateau Palmer, but I also published the same week this really cool history about the guy who gave the name to Chateau Palmer, who is this English guy who fought in the Peninsula Wars and he had duels and he, he died penniless and he just had this incredible life. So I, so I published that at the same time. So I'm always trying to think different content channels and how to make it fun and interesting for people. And of course, like everybody else, I've been reading about NFTs and thinking, you know, how can I how, how can I make use of them? Are they real? There's a lot of cynicism surrounding them, certainly right now. So how can I do something with NFTs in a way that is tangible? And that's, I, I really like that idea of utility NFTs when they actually have a real use beyond just being an NFT. I didn't want to do something which was purely seen as an investment vehicle as an NFT. And so I'm in the fortunate position as an author of having content which I own so I looked back over the different books that I'd written and where did I have the copyright what where did I have something real that I could do something with and the first book that I wrote this one that we mentioned earlier called Bordeaux Legends which is about the history of the first growths is it's a really cool book it's the first book I ever wrote like with my own name on the cover about 10 years ago and I was super lucky that it was this really fascinating subject about these five most famous wines in Bordeaux. How did they become like, why was, why was Lafitte and Latour the first gross, but not Lynch Barge, which was next door, et cetera. So it was, it was all about their, their history. And I got Francis Ford Coppola to write the forward for the first time around. And I had this wonderful photographer called Isabel Rosenbaum, who did these beautiful, beautiful pictures. And Isabel and myself had both got the copyright back. So I went to her and said, I'd like to redo this book as an ebook, but to sell it as an NFT. And she was happy to. She had no idea. I, mean, I think at, at the beginning, this probably started about last September, or maybe a little bit, maybe about a year ago. And there's so little knowledge about what an NFT is. So I always take the approach of, I want to make things as simple as possible. I feel like that when I write anything, like I said about the terroir chapter, I kept rewriting it until it was simpler. Every time I wanted to strip away the stuff that's difficult and make it understandable. So I really took the same approach with an NFT. How do I make it super, super simple for anyone to get access to? So anyway, I, I I found a designer to turn this book, which was a hard book, a real book, a hardcover, into an ebook. And then I found a wonderful friend of mine who's a digital artist to do a new cover. Because if you're going to have an NFT, a digital book, why not have fun? And rather than using the same cover, he did this amazing digital artwork that was connected to the first growth, which was the cover for the book. And I tried, I honestly must have tried with about two or three or four different companies who said they could do an NFT ebook, um, but either they just disappeared, they, what they were planning didn't work, it just was so complicated, and it kept on stopping and starting. And then this year, in maybe March or April, I met the guys at Club Divan, who I know we might talk about, that's like an NFT wine club. And I just immediately, when I met them, I liked them, I trusted them. They, they made things very simple as to how I could do this. And so they hooked me up with a company in, in LA, in fact, so where you guys are, called Embershot. And Embershot have a, a, a platform 
It's called Shoot2, which is for content producers to be able to get their content in an easy way to the to the end consumer. And w- within a couple of months, not even within a, really a month, we had worked out how we were going to do it. And what I'd given to them as my kind of red lines was I need, it needed to be simple. I needed people not to have to buy in cryptocurrency. And I needed them not to have to go to like OpenSea or whatever, one of those NFT places to buy from. And so they worked it out so that people could buy direct from my website and using their normal bank card. They could use crypto, but they could also use their normal bank card. And they could read read this thing through their own platform. People can also download it to their crypto wallet, but they can also read it without ever going anywhere near a crypto wallet. And I think that's the evolution of NFTs. You realize you still get this idea of being on the blockchain so people genuinely own the book and they genuinely own the ebook that they bought and there's traceability and for me as a content creator I'll get a royalty which of course you don't get when people buy and sell a normal a normal book so you have the benefits of that idea of being on the blockchain but you're taking away this kind of cynicism of oh you've got to know you've got to be so tech savvy you've got to understand how to do it so I wanted to take that away and then on top of all of that when I was thinking about pricing I wanted to make it even more I just really was conscious that this was probably the first time I was doing something that people could be very negative about what I was doing, that it could really be something that people say, oh, Jane's just jumping on the bandwagon of NFTs. So again, I wanted just to really give somebody a good deal. So what I did was, if you bought that NFT, you also got lifetime subscription to my site, which is a pretty cool thing. And I just, I charged 500 euros for all of it. So that's the book plus the digital art plus lifetime subscription of the site. And so I knew if people bought that NFT, if they got nothing else but the lifetime sub, they were getting a good deal. But actually, they're also getting this awesome book and, and digital art. So yeah, so it's been so fun. I loved doing it. It was great. You mentioned Club Devin. You, how did you talk more about that relationship? You know, that, how shows that? How, that shows how French I've become. I call it Club Duvan. <laughs> you guys call it Club Duvin. You're quite I right. also say everything French that I try and say is wrong. Yeah, that's just Brady. But, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to talk, talk to us about that relationship and how that's kind of evolved over time as you become more you know, involved with that project. So I actually, when I first met them, I... Again, there's a lot of natural cynicism, I think, that we all have about what does it mean to be an NFT wine club? And I I find it a little hard to to get. But what I did from the beginning was I really liked the people who were involved as people. I really kind of straight away got on with them and and trusted them and and just liked their approach. And so I just really said, yes, I'm happy to to get involved because I, I thought they were interesting people and I liked them. And then the more I've kind of watched as Club Divan has, has progressed, the more impressed I am with the fact that they, I think, also see this very much as being just a way to connect people who, who are interested in wine, but also to connect in a way to bring lots of new experiences to people and to, to just find a new way of talking about wine. And that's something that I am very interested in. And I, I like seeing the way they're doing that. So that idea that they're bringing together People and then maybe offering them the chance to go to Bhutan and do a, do a, a, a harvest in the kingdom of Bhutan years and years and years ago. And again, it goes back to this idea of linking different parts of your life together. When I worked in Hong Kong, I worked for a travel magazine, and and I one of the stories I really remember is is about Bhutan. 
and always wanting to visit and I never have, but it's been always like a dream of mine to go to Bhutan. So when I saw that that was one of the things Club Divan offered, it just made me think, you're you're with like-minded people who are interested in the same thing. And that's a fun thing about wine, about any special interests that people have, but finding people that you kind of, you know, connect with and it's fun. And I think that Club Divan has done a good job, actually, of bringing lots of different types of people with different backgrounds into the club and and setting it up. And it's no different than any other members club. And I think that's the thing that for me, I would want, I don't know if they, I don't know if they agree, but for me, it's not about NFTs. It's about having a, a new way to bring people in who might not have thought about wine before because they might be collectors of NFTs. So maybe that's the way they're being brought in. But at its heart, it's just a nice way to meet people from different backgrounds and have this shared interest of wine. Yeah, and I think well, there's so as a as a wine NFT lover of both, I've been trying to buy like every wine related NFT for the past year and a half, I guess. <laughs> and it's really interesting to see their model. What I, what I like about it is it's kind of when you have like the digital, you have the NFT kind of tasting notes and then those NFT corks as well. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting because it's, it's all about trying to remember that, that experience you had and, and not going away. It's just like how people hold on to corks or labels sometimes the bottles they had. I, I kind of, I like that and being able to kind of pass that on or, you know, Talk about it with your friends or the people that you might have shared these experiences I with. I agree with you. And, you know, I didn't really get that either until, well, like I say, it was really was just about trusting the people before I understood anything about it. But when I launched my NFT, we did a very, very small, there were just like 12 of us. I had a dinner in Bordeaux and we opened. I brought two bottles of First Growth with me. I brought one 2019 El D'Argent, which is the Mouton Rothschild white wine. And I brought... God, I should remember what vintage it was. I think it was a 2006, I think, of a Mouton Rothschild, the red. And the reason I brought them is because I think Mouton has almost got the most interesting story of all of them in terms of it wasn't a first growth at first and, and how it got there. And I wanted to talk about it that night. Anyway, that was all fine. But Club Divan came along and they did a tasting token for those wines so that all of us around the table could have the memory of opening them. And I saw what they'd done and this beautiful little video that they'd done of each of those wines that that showed you where, where you know, the vineyard and where it came from. And it looked really pretty. And I thought exactly the same thing. What a nice thing, what a memory to have that you then can share with the other people that were around that table. And when right at the beginning, when you said to me, what are your memories of the kind of the wines that were transformative I don't have any I have it in my head but I don't have a something to mark that and it's and that's a, a nice idea the tasting tokens that you actually have something tangible that, that you can remember yeah no I, I think yeah I actually have when I first I the people on this podcast have heard me talk about it before but I got into wine kind of like full bore but like all of a sudden and I I still remember I had a, a meal with my parents we had a, a Dutreve Fleury I think it was 2018 or no, it couldn't have been. It was 2014. Anyway, but I still have that quirk somewhere. Moral of the story, just oh, for like no. that one reason. And it's like the first wine I like, that we were at a meal and I was like, oh, mom and dad, I actually know what I'm doing. I got this. Yeah, it was it was a long time ago, it seems like now. But what I think is interesting there is these items can almost become collectibles in their own sense. Like I was thinking for a while back, like if you had the the NFT quirk or the, t- the token from like say the judgment of Paris, for example, and you're able to have like those wines or even keeping with Spurrier, like the last wine that he tasted. And like, this was, you know, some of those, like, you know, it's going to be inadvertent down the line, but I think some of these things are going to be like, Oh, these were the wines tasted at X. And it's going to be kind of, kind of just cool. It's, again, it's building on that history and I'm a history nerd when it comes to wine too. But I also just circling back to, to your 
NFT as well. I, I thought that was a really interesting process. And it, w- it was very, very simple. I kind of wish I waited till the euro was worth even less, but yeah. I'm a big fan of the utility side of things. And I think like your offer, when I saw like the lifetime membership, I was blown away that somebody was actually doing it. When we were trying to work with producers, we were like, well, if you really want your NFT to, you know, add value to people and also, you know, maybe generate buzz for you, it's like offer a lifetime, you know, at least maybe just six bottles or three bottles every year. And it's like, that won't, you know, as long as you're in existence, that won't be the end of the world. And that would have been something cool. I think that that lifetime means you genuinely are trying to, you know, offer something else aside from the book too, which is of course. I, I agree. And in fact, that was Club Divan that were really helpful with me. They didn't have any financial stake in the NFT. I, I said to them, offered them to be part of the royalty that you get, but they, 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 they didn't, they were very nice and said, and said, no, they put me in touch with the people in LA and they obviously got paid for it, but not Club Divan, but they were really, really helpful for me in terms of talking through what should the pricing strategy be and how do you make it interesting? And so that idea of lifetime membership came from, came from those conversations. Awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I've, it's been interesting. I'm, I've participated in the the Mandavi NFT project from something like that. to there's these guys in the Languedoc who just had an NFT and they didn't really know why they just wanted it. And they, I was like, well, what will I get if I buy this NFT? They're like, we'll be very nice to you when you come visit us. And I was like, all right, someday I'll, I'll make it. So. And did you buy them? Did you buy like Chateau Darius? Cause which was pretty much the first, certainly from Bordeaux, Chateau Darius sold an NFT. I think now it must be 18 months ago, maybe. And that was the same thing. They, they sold, you basically got a bottle of wine as an NFT and and you and you owned one bottle, but you but you kind of had to go to the chateau to pick it up. I, I got the Languedoc one. I am I guess I was late to the game on the Darius one. I'll have to look into that. No, I, I'm, I'm in impressed. The, so tell me how many you have. I think I probably have six hundred seven different projects. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's one on a blockchain that's on the Elrond blockchain. That's uh, it's a project. Basically, that's one where basically they're trying to build a whole D to C business just by buying wine grapes quote unquote, you know, digital grapes. I'm part of the Languedoc project, part of the Mondavi project. I did not buy the Vint one that we, we made. Club you, didn't buy, you didn't buy the Angelis. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no which, which mysteriously now is just an NFT that's still valued at many ETH and there's no barrel attached to it anymore, which is oh, kind of funny to me. Yeah, so. I think uh, that for Angelis, I think we should give them credit for being the first of the big chateaus to do something, but I think it was probably a little too early in terms of them really getting maybe the maximum benefit that they could have done, but I'm sure that they'll do it again. And it will, I think, you know, they definitely were first movers in terms of thinking they wanted to do something in that space. There's one guy in South Australia. That's one that I have not got. And he basically tried to sell, I think it was South Australia. He's tried to sell his whole vintage last year, barrel by barrel NFT for every barrel. And you could have gotten it and gone down and had a great experience. But I think part of it was, Due to COVID and, and some of the tariffs with China, he's he's basically like, I'm going to try anything and do it this how way. How so. interesting! And how did it go? I'm I'm not sure. That's when I really need to look into. I mean, it's, I tracked it for a few months, and all of the barrels were still there for an extended period of time. So I don't think many people bought them, but that was it was a decent value too. He's, we we will bottle them, we'll ship them. You know, you come here. I think his thing, which was kind of interesting, is unlike maybe like Penfolds has been working with Block Bar. It was kind of people outside the the country didn't really recognize the name as much. My 
deep dive into wine after I had passed my certified sommelier exam stuff. I, I had worked in advertising before and I kind of went in kind of through the back door too, just kind of studying from a history. And I compared it to my art history background a little bit, but then I worked at vintage in Australia and kind of got my, my hands dirty. And it, and it was interesting to like, I'm sure this guy's wines are great. And there's probably like, there's so many great producers down there and, and throughout the world that people haven't really heard of. So I'm sure like, you know, that barrel has a great, a lot of value. It's just hard to quantify it. You know, yep. in LA. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, but it is, it's an interesting way to, to reach people who maybe otherwise might not have thought of purchasing. And I, I think for Bordeaux, one of the benefits, I think at the moment there's a lot of interest, but nobody really understands it. And it's hard to kind of quantify, just like you say, how it's going to benefit. But there is certainly an understanding in Bordeaux that right now the average Bordeaux buyer of the, of the expensive stuff tends to be quite a lot older and you know and that they're not they, they have to find a way of reaching a new younger audience and this is potentially a way for them for them to do it yeah for sure i'm just looking up what's the name of the other one oh yeah it's www wine so it's like www wine is the other project they're like it's a uh, french okay. it's a french based project I see um, what they did there yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah, I, I'm I'm loosely attached to it. I have one digital bottle somewhere. I think it's like a a twelve dollar something from again. I think the Languedoc. So it, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I think I have, I have a question for you. What do you think of the the idea of having NFT platforms that are specifically connected to wine? Do you think that's going to work? Is is that the right way to go? I've I've looked into a few of these. Like there's a project called Wiv as well, W I V, and they kind of have their own. I think to your point earlier about making it simple and bridging the gap. I think having these NFT specific platforms, unless they have that UI in the front end that's really accessible in a understandable manner, and you can interact with it without crypto, I think that's going to be the future. I think it has to be like kind of what you're doing is building on a blockchain and having that almost be secondary and then kind of rolling in kind of these features secondhand. Cause I mean, even as your side is very simple for someone who has never participated in crypto before, but like as somebody who I normally buy all my NFTs say on OpenSea or directly, like I, my first question to your team was like, how do I get this in my OpenSea wallet? Or like, I, I went the other way. I was like, yeah, all right, I, I don't really understand what this platform <laughs> is. How do I get it here? <laughs> so, so I, I think, Bridging that gap between and the wine community. Was it easy, by the way? Was it easy to get it from the platform I did into your crypto wallet? Well, I will say I haven't successfully not, not done it. Nothing is easy in crypto. Yeah, I haven't successfully <laughs> done it yet. I've, I've, it's been on my list. I've been emailing with the, I emailed with the team, I think a while back, but I, I'm going to make it happen. I just, I, I've also had times in crypto where I've been too quick to try to do something that I want to happen and then lost it or it's gone wrong. So I want to make sure I like take my time because I want that that book to make sure it's you know, not lost. I think the, the, the blockchain benefit of like verified ownership is going to have to, like it's going to have to become apparent that that function is the biggest value add. I think I for totally people. I totally agree with you. Because right now, I mean, even for like the club membership, there's no reason it needs to be an NFT to have club membership. You know, we could, we did, could do that before with just a paper gift certificate or like, you know, some kind of, yeah, there are other ways to uh, track something like that, but I think that, and I don't know where it will take hold, but the verified ownership is going to have to be, I think, what sets apart. So for me, that that's one yeah. of the things that I don't think, I, I definitely don't think people understand that enough. But when you think if you buy a book on Kindle, you don't own that book. Kindle still owns the book. You have the right to read the book. That's it. You can't then 
give it to somebody else or sell it on to somebody else. If somebody's bought Bordeaux Legends the way that I've done it, they are absolutely able to sell that on because they own that their copy of the book. So it is, and I, I definitely don't think that that has been sufficiently explained simply enough that there is a genuine benefit. Yeah, I, that, that the example of physical book versus essentially what is like a Kindle version, that actually is really clear to me. I think that that's a, a really good example of that principle because, you, you know, you can't sell your digital copy or you yeah. can't give your digital copy to someone else. And that's yeah, why I think exactly. Club Devan's doing an interesting, you know, they're, they're trying to bridge that gap. But I think that's where the disconnect with wine is, particularly is you can't have a digital wine and enjoy it like you can have a record that you own it but that how do you maintain you know whether it be something in the capsule or something where that wine still exists in in the real world and also fit that in it isn't well then they need to set up the club divan metaverse and then then we can get our bottles of wine put into the metaverse and then we'll have our own little cellars in the metaverse that will be cool (laughs) if they could just get onto that yeah we'll we'll let them know we'll let them know exactly (laughs) Well, awesome. Those have been all my questions. Thanks so much for staying on extra time, Jane. Thank you. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering. 